it's almost like a new period of human history, like the Enlightenment, will imagine an entire design renaissance. So the internet is not evolving at random. There's a hidden goal driving the direction of all of the technology we make. Tech companies are actually taking over the world, and they're doing it with our government's help. Uh, so everybody acknowledges that these are valuable entities. They provide value in our life. Government does nothing as well or as economically as the private sector of the economy. But there's also seems to be a growing awareness that they have become so big that they have too much power now. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and is gravely to be regarded. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and I will be your host as we go through this second part of the collaborative episode that I did with the Panoptic podcast. I will just pick up where we left off. We had basically introduced all of the topics we were going to be discussing, or at least got into the beginnings of those. We talked a little bit about uh, philosophy, about markets and the state. We talked about uh, technology and big data and how that could relate to the political realm and some of the ramifications socially with all that stuff and talked about that kind of stuff. And so now we'll just pick right back up and continue on with that discussion. So enjoy. So, I, you know, I'd like to translate some of this, I think, into some of the, what you were saying, Jason, about strategic action and some of what Josh, what you were pointing out in terms of parallels into uh, into maybe a, a set of terms that will help us get to the present and have a maybe a, a certain sense of the past as it relates to it. And what I would say is I think regardless of whether we, you know, Jason agree about where strategic and communicative action begin or end, I think we talked about this the other day on the phone. You know, even if even if we don't agree about that, I think it's interesting to look at it from the concept of the media through which people interact and the systems of interaction that we have, and that, for instance, came to exist with the Enlightenment. And as of as of sort of laid out, um, it's not that me up uh, someone like Habermas and someone who is thinking from media theoretical perspective. It's not presenting. It's not presenting you with a framework in which they're talking about human nature. That is, for them, or let's say from this framework, it's almost beside the point. We go back to, for instance, to Hobbes. You know, this key political thinker in our tradition. So, what obviously everybody kind of knows our, you know, the sort of like Sparks Notes version of of Hobbes. But Hobbes basically thought, in the state of nature, life is violent. Basically, we need a territorial ruler, the Leviathan, who can, who can, who people will make a pact to give up, give up their autonomy to an extent, and their power and their capacity to overpower others, uh, and they give power to that to that territorial ruler. Only the territorial ruler has the legitimate, the 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 right of legitimate violence. The sovereign. That word, that famous sort of word that refers to kings and then with the sort of bourgeois revolution and the shift towards popular sovereignty will refer to the people. Sovereignty means exactly that. Who holds power, right? So our legal system is really about neutralizing action. 
Now, Habermas isn't saying necessarily that language is based on a sort of idealism about people communicating and coming like, you know, making agreements and like, and so forth. He's saying that language structurally as a media, the way it acts in the world, the way it exists in the world, it forces people to have to make claims about reality, about number one, sort of general reality, social reality, and their interior sort of like personal reality. Number one, so it's a me. So to language, whether we, you know, whatever we draw the line in terms of communication or strategic action, it regulates our action. It's something. It's a technology that we developed as human beings, and it has a structure, and it in, and we interact with it every day. And when I say the sky is blue, the 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 balloon is yellow. You know, Jason has dark hair. These these uh, the propositional structure of that language. It's such that I'm making a specific set of claims that can be checked that can be argued about, that some a, a second party can sort of, in a sense, um, refute or agree with. That is that communicative realm. Money and the law, if you think about the law is, and we go back to Hobbes, it's about neutralizing power. It's about saying, where does your power begin and my power? You know, where does your power begin and end? Um, where can you act? And to what extent? And and because of the way, uh, and and we haven't gone in depth into talking about this transition out of the Renaissance, out of feudalism, into sort of modern day, what we call, let's say, capitalism, modern capitalism. But in our very legal institutional system, in a sense, uh, crystallizes what was uh, that sort of set of social relations, one in which the newly ascendant uh, bourgeois middle classes um, ma- you know basically clamored for their uh, their what they saw as their rights their rights to property their rights to liberty to speech to so forth and this became institutionalized in the legal system that that by its design is supposed to not only separate powers in terms of who legislates who executes and who uh, reviews but also sets aside a sphere of action which is neutralized by the by money uh, where it's, in a, say, regulated by money, self-regulating, doesn't need, you know, in terms of sort of classic economics, doesn't need the government to step in in terms of to insure contracts and so forth. So if we think about it in, in those terms, in the way that these media regulate our, you know, our actions, and whether we, you know, whether we agree about communicative or strategic action, um, in our tradition, liberal the liberal element of our tradition is about safeguarding that private realm, safeguarding that realm that's where the government's not supposed to interfere and where other people are not supposed to interfere to an extent into our, let's say, our, our autonomy, but giving us, a, opening up a realm for autonomy through, that is self-regulating. And how does it self-regulate? Through the media of money, which becomes institutionalized in law with the rise of the modern nation state. So prior, you know, I think Joshua, you were talking about how you know what to what extent is money controlled by the state in the past and so forth. You know, if you think about it, um, we could talk about something like the Roman Empire and its money and so forth and its institutions and how much it regulated money and and, and whatever. But it had a very different set of social relations. It had a very different mode of production. It was not based on 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 private property production in the same way that we have after the after feudalism. So I think we have to you know be 
exact to an extent when we sort of start making parallels. There is a difference. The nation state in a way does control money, you're right, in a way that doesn't happen before. Let's say even during the Renaissance where a city state might have controlled money. And in Italy, Florence would have had a currency. Venice would have had a currency. Rome would have had a currency and so forth. But but with the rise of the nation state, money becomes institutionalized or the private realm or the prime of, of the realm of private autonomy and action does become institutionalized by law, by positive law, a law that is supposed to be bound and, and in a way connected to uh, popular sovereignty so that so that we do have ideally in this in this system, we do have this balance between private, the liberal element and the Republican element the political will formation, access to the political system, access to, to making that law and transferring that public opinion to to legislative branch and then where it's formed and sort of where the legislative branch has its own methods where it's supposed to, yes, people act, of course, representatives act strategically in it, but the methods are supposed to, in a way, draw out, out of all those strategic actions in the legislative branch a sort of consensus, uh, a law that's legitimate. Which, by the way, because of the separation, separations of power, if it's not in line with constitutional develop, you know, constitutional foundations, something like the judicial branch can say, "Uh-uh, that's that's. I don't care that you passed that law and that it seems legitimate. That's not, you know, that's not okay." So, if we think of it that way, I think what you're trying to get at, or what you're getting at, Joshua, is how this supposed system that's supposed to balance public interests and private interests through these media that we've come up with in our tradition law money uh in an institutional sense to neutralize both power and public and private initiative or private interest how these have been in a sense how these were supposed to be somewhat beholden to the public sphere they were somewhat through the legislative branch there was supposed to be a produce a production of laws that were supposed to in a way, program the administrative state so it's beholden, it's reactive to people's to people's everyday lives. So that when there are the let's say the administrative life, uh, state starts uh, going into everyday in their everyday life, and in a sense causing negative, having negative effects, this is supposed to transfer through things like the media, which is supposed to pick up these signals, right? The media is supposed to say, oh, you know, this law is really screwing up these people over here, and this law, look what it did over here, and, and so forth. It's supposed to, in a way, transfer that public opinion through the media to the legislative branch and to change those laws, to make the administrative system, which is supposed to, again, in a sense, bound that realm of, of private initiative to the public interest. It's supposed to make it reactive to the very public interest. So when we have, but here's the problem, and I think this is what, you know, if we talk about it in this abstract sense and, and without talking about concretes, it's what happens when the media, the mass media, the press get sucked up into into uh, the market system. Um, what happens when um, citizens are maybe haggling over material rights, not necessarily over the public interest? How do you square up these things? That's a very difficult question. And now if we fast forward to now, you have an even more complex um ecology of media than we used to have you know Habermas argument is is twofold it's technological it's think with with the rise of mass media with the radio with the television and so forth and the ability of the market to sort of channel these for for in the interests of strategic interest of getting people to buy things as you said Jason like a strategic interest of 
of um, um, uh, commercial strategic interest and in a way co-opting what is what's supposed to be a sphere of discussion of transferring public opinion to the legislative branch. It gets even more complex with this with this ecology, very complex ecology of media, where, as you mentioned, Joshua, not only is a lot of mainstream media corporately owned, and therefore, in a sense, already there's a there's a there's a there's a huge conflict of interest between this media that's supposed to serve a public interest, transfer public opinion to the legislative branch where it can be formalized into law, and the fact that they have private interests, they want to make money, and they have other interests. Sometimes these people that own the media also own industries, right? Also have commercial interests in other parts of the economy. And now you have an even more diffuse public sphere when you have tons of platforms, tons of, you know, the through the internet, tons of venues, very diffuse venues of people uh, all over the world, in, in a sense globalized, talking to each other, talking past each other in, 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 in platforms like Facebook and Twitter and so forth that are not necessarily oriented towards um, in a, whether we agree with J, uh, Howard Moss or not, are not oriented towards a sort of critical discussion, right? We could even maybe be reflective a little bit here and say, well, uh, what about things like YouTube and and podcasts, which open up a whole new realm for discussion that that is much that is not necessarily guided by commercial interests. So that that's where I think then we get Jason. If we translate, you know, our disagreements into a sort of like, or if we bypass our disagreements and translate into the, the issues we're facing, is when we get and I want to talk concretely about things like algorithms and government and governmentality through algorithms. What happens when something like an algorithm, which is designed and oriented to get as many eyeballs to parse as data in a way to get people to buy things at the end of the day, right? What is Google? It's a fantastic, yes, it's a search engine. It's amazing and it's learning all the time and so forth. But it really, Google wants me to somehow find my way to a product, click on it. And they want to make a buck of it. Well, and they also want to take all the data of everything I click on in the computer, every website I go to, every email I send, every place that I check in, every every Facebook like, and somehow package it into 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 packets of attention, credit, and populations that they can somehow monetize. So, so there's a huge con- uh, conflict between, and we've seen this with fa- with Facebook in particular between the interests of the company and the interests of public opinion and what the media is supposed to do in terms of being the carrier of public opinion, the carrier of that communicative reason, supposedly, where we're agreeing on things, not just being strategic, but saying, hey, we think this is best for society and transferring that into laws to program and make the administrative state reactive to what people actually want and need. So, you know, I think, I hope that gets us to the present a little bit. What do you What do you think about that? Or what what comments do you both have about this this framing of this, the problem as it might, and I think we can, and I, I want to, I know Jason has some things, I have some things to sort of like thicken and, and make it more concrete. I know it's very abstract. Yeah, there's um, one thing that I wanted to ask and get you to elaborate more on, either you or Jason, but you talked about uh, capitalism and the influence of that, and that's the obvious link between this time of the Renaissance Enlightenment period and modern times. Capitalism is what comes in between, and that's our precursor to all these things we're talking about today. And so I am interested in your views on uh, the influence of capitalism on society in relation to these things we're discussing. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll say a couple of things and I'll let Jason respond. You know, if we talk about it historically, um, what 
you know, what was feudalism, right? So the historian Marc Bloch, uh, a French historian, talks, you know, he basically characterizes feudalism as having two sets of social relations. The first was the system of loyalties that linked lords and vassals, the feudal nobility, right? And the second was the relations between, of exploitation, really, I mean, between the feudal lord and the serf. The serfs worked the land, the serfs did, you know, whatever they needed to do in the land, and the feudal lord basically took a little bit of a pay from that. Uh, but in return, there was a sort of sort of, uh, arrangement in which the, the lord uh, guaranteed a certain territorial safety to these serfs. Uh, it was supposed to ensure their, their freedom from, let's say, other lords um, and so forth. And it was supposed to be the lawmaking authority to an extent. It was the sovereign. And then you could add then the church as sort of the spiritual authority that guarded over the system of belief that held society together. We're talking about European feudalism specifically. And and it consisted basically, uh, the theology consisted of a sort of a network of correspondence between the physical world and the spiritual realm, which added, which in that political alliance between feudal classes and the, and the Roman church in the, in the post-Roman Empire period, uh, served as a sort of mutually reinforcing buttress to the power, to both earthly power and the church's power, um, to the feudal power and, the, and earthly power. And it provided an ideological justification for the sovereign power of the Lord, right? The Lord, in a sense was, um, had this power, which historically it had been a power gained through war and conquest, but had it through, through being, in a sense, in good standing with the church and, and having a sort of uh, theological justification, or at, least, or at least to an extent. Now, uh, you know, for Habermas, he paints, he, in his book on the structural transformation of the public theory, he begins by talking about the, the transition out of, of, the, of this feudal, system to the renaissance and he really focuses on the way that uh in particular if we think about the rise of of bankers let's say in in the italian city states particularly in florence uh you know the families like the medici you know they were situated geographically between the east and western europe between the middle east and western europe they were situated geographically in a very after the sort of fall of the antique world and a sort of, um, they were situated in a way that they were they were able to be middlemen in a sense in the trading that was starting to take place between uh, for for goods from the east that were being um, very much sort of demanded in the in these big trade fairs in France and in Brussels and in in, in Belgium and so forth. Therefore, they had to also become really good at logistics. And they had to become really good at creating new technologies like letters of credit and things of that nature. Um, this is sort of Habermas's art, you know, discussion about uh, historically. Uh, they, therefore, they were at the margins of the feudal system, which was, in terms of production, it was peasant production. Uh, in terms of agriculture, it was peasant production. And in terms of processed or produ produced goods and services, it was in the, based on the guild system. It was the guild system was not a for-profit system. It was a system of producing goods uh, for the nobility that was about controlling local production in the towns uh, through a set of uh, secret formulas and processes and through a very hierarchical uh, apprenticeship system, right? With the rise of capital that the Medici have, they're able to start influencing politics. They're able to start, you know, financing the church, financing the aristocracy, uh, their central um, 
to the rise of the modern nation state. So for, for Habermas, the public sphere forms during the late Renaissance when sort of the modern mercantilist state with its kind of newfound need for centralized administration and taxation begins regulating the commercial sphere, which is that sphere of private initiative, you know, where the Medici have been acting, for instance. And then the urban commercial middle classes, which are at the margins of the traditional feudal economy, began begin to demand accountability for government action. Since any of government administrative regulation regulates affairs that are their affairs as private citizens, as private people. So according to Habermas, there emerges concurrently, you know, this sphere of civil society made up of formal and informal institutions in which public opinion is supposed to be formed and transferred to the state. Uh, in other words, capital, and this is this is also part of Habermas's argument, at one point, at a certain point, there was almost a concurrent uh, relation between the rise of the modern nation state and capital because at some point capital demands not only certain certain conditions, legal conditions, but also certain uh, certain requirements for it to to grow beyond a certain extent. You know, if you create stock companies, if you create uh, if you pull together capital and you try and you want to make sure to minimize private risk, you need legal instruments that are that exist to do that. You also need uh, uh, you also need the state in another way to back up your 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 um, your big scale uh, operations or or attempts commercial interests both locally and overseas. Um, so you need a certain regulation of trade and so forth. So for Habermas, these things are inextricable. The rise of the modern nation state and the markets are not, you know, somehow things that you can disconnect from each other. They are inextricable. Uh, they're institutionalized in law, and they. And the mercantile estate, what we call the mercantile estate, in a sense, is is um, is a state that's very oriented, basically, to to spurring um, uh, the growth of capital for you know of, of trade and of the production of finished goods at home for their sale abroad and the importation of finished goods. It's also tied to colonialism, intrinsic, you know, intrinsically tied to colonialism, uh, which we could spend a lot of time going into but I, but I want to go into right now one quick thing I'll add to that one this may or may not be I mean we, we could certainly have different historical perspectives on this I I read about half of Steven Pinker's new book uh, Enlightenment Now and he kind of pinpoints some of the core Enlightenment values values that are derivative of the Enlightenment reason science and humanism and perhaps we could view the rise of big tech today is kind of the natural progression uh, from the Enlightenment, especially if we think to how kind of corporate scientists or researchers applied principles of reason and science uh, in the firm throughout the Industrial Revolutions to increase efficiencies, reduce costs, all kind of to accomplish things that were tied to the bottom line of um, you know manufacturing companies like Ford and things like that. So, uh, and, you know, and now we see not just the rise of big tech, but almost like a romanticization of a big tech as well. You know, Silicon Valley is kind of this beacon of perpetual progress, perpetual growth, mm -hmm. this kind of like transhumanism that we see coming out of there. There's a cultural element to it that is uniquely, that is distinctly tied to the Enlightenment, tied to our Enlightenment values. No. It's something that Nietzsche would just absolutely despise, <laughs> thinking back to our episode on Nietzsche. So... um 
So I, I wonder if we could interpret this history as something that is uniquely, um, you know, that is inevitable, starting from a place of the Enlightenment. Which element is in, in, in which, what do you, uh, Jason, just to clarify, uh, which element is in, would be inevitable? Could we, uh, I mean, what question? The use of technology raise? is kind of uh, a means to, to increase efficiencies, reduce costs, and uh, maximize the bottom line yeah. for, for capitalism. And I think one way we could talk, and I think this links up maybe to to an extent to to Habermas's framing, framing, right? But what was really revolutionary about the rise of these sort of like merchants, like the Medici, was that they really um, they they escaped that feudal that feudal set of social relations. They escaped the the the, the relationship between feudal lord and peasant on the vertical on the vertical axis, and on the horizontal axis. Um, they were able to outpace the guilds, right? Um, the guilds were working in a, fra- in a framework of production, which was about using old formulas to produce things, secret old formulas that were supposed to be passed on in an artisanal way, right? It was about artisanal labor. And it was about producing things at a smaller scale, at a local, controlling, very much controlling local markets. It wasn't about competition at all. So with the shift to an institutionalized modern nation state in which you open up the realm where you legally, literally, I mean, think about our system of what we have legally. It's a system of rights, private rights and public rights, civil rights and private rights. And those private rights, um, which are so fundamental in a way link up to our to, our, the, to that tension in the Enlightenment thought between, between autonomy of the individual, yes, but also the notion that through method, through a sort of like... A, uh, a, a method that is uh, objective, that we can find mo- modes of governance and of administration of things like markets that optimize these, optimize the realm of private realm. So, I mean, in a sense, you could almost think how because there's this tension between what the political community is supposed to agree about and the fact that in the market, people are supposed to act based on private interest, on selfishness, basically. I mean, you could almost say the the, the big um, tension there is between how in the market realm, all these selfish or self-interested acts are supposed to balance out, but it's supposed to balance out because we have institutionalized a system in which the law is supposed to, sort of supposed to vouch for the public interest. But to what extent, to what extent uh, does science get captured, or maybe that's not a fair term, but in a way... Is science almost, um, in a way, being siphoned uh, away? Not necessarily away from just uh, uh, finding out the truth, but siphoned towards what we would call the interest of, of industry and capital, right? Um, not just not in a, in a one dimensional sense. Not just it's not just that science is always like, say, oh, how can we make more money for capitalists? That's not that's not that would be a computer conspiracy theory. But it's that. The orientation towards, uh, and well, I think I want I want to talk this about about this in a little bit in, in the context of this what we call the smart city and the and algorithmic governmentality. The idea that we can optimize both the private realm and the markets, um, and every level of administration because we have a foolproof uh, objective method, scientific, is is no doubt I think one that uh, ties into the way art of art technology has developed and its orientation and what it aims to do and is at odds very much with that ethos of let's say just to name one example that the feudal the feudal social set of system relations which is not about things like efficiency where you know that that would not have been a way in which people thought about um 
what was good for everybody, right? So the tension between, let's say, something like maximizing efficiency and the public interest is definitely something that's, that uh, captures attention that's intrinsic to our to an Enlightenment tradition. If you think about the notion that you can simply transfer a scientific method, let's say, to governance or to the administration of the market, if if that makes sense, you know, if there's if you can if I'm making clear what the tension would be there. Yeah, yeah, and one aspect of that that I'm getting as you're talking about these different institutions and systems and these shifts is that we have this ideal and in a lot of ways many of these factors in an ideal perspective are very good for us, very good for society, for the public sphere and they work very well. However, if we look historically and in modern times, there is a contradiction between how these things ideally play out and act and govern and run and how they realistically do. We see the impact of capitalism on markets and on governments and on society as a whole, on discourse. And we see a shift from discourse and consumer behavior that was much more rational, I would say, and uh, public interests that are uh, ideally represented within their government, within the state. But there's a shift from this ideal to the modern focus on consumerism, on entertainment, on content that is convenient and easy to consume, And in many ways, this is good from a capitalist perspective, because that means people are buying more stuff. And that is a good thing. That's good for the economy. But from a public interest standpoint, from a more macro view, that's probably not very good from some other perspectives. And so there is this difference between the ideal and the reality, similar to the internet, where the internet began as a decentralized platform for everyone to share ideas, to share projects, to communicate and build relationships and keep relationships. And this is a wonderful thing. That is a very good ideal. It promotes open discourse. And it definitely promotes a lot of the things that we're talking here today, things that we are saying are very good for society and positive aspects. But the reality is that the internet has evolved or devolved, um, evolved technologically and devolved ideologically, probably, into a platform for corporate actors to monitor, analyze, steer, distract, and take advantage of individuals. And we see a lot of that control in the hands of these corporate actors, um, companies like the big tech companies that control information, they control the platforms, and largely they help to steer the way that we see content and oftentimes the way that we think about content. They have these algorithms that help them to know how we will likely react to a certain headline or to a certain ad or to seeing a certain thing that one of our friends posted, and they know which things they can show us to get a specific reaction. And obviously, the incentives in a system of capitalism where we're focused on profits, the incentive for a corporation is to push more consumerism, more entertainment, more consumption, because they get more profits. And we do see this playing out. 
We see that true discourse is possible like never before, but it is rarely pursued. And I would argue that this is largely due to our modern ideology with a focus on entertainment, convenience, status, um, the outrage culture, that these are not things that really correlate well with our ideals that we're talking about with public discourse, even though people are having discourse online, they're talking together, they're passing articles around, they're commenting on current events, but it's not really in this more ideal sense that we would like it to be. It seems like a lot of how this is playing out realistically is something that is a little more questionable, and a lot of this is highly impacted by, like you had mentioned, the strategic action and strategic communication by players like corporations and the influence that they have through their specific markets and their specific platforms. So it's something that I see this ideal, and you you talk about maybe new ways of doing governance, new ways of having an economic system that's better and using science and technology and data to help us in these things. And um, I, I guess I'll probably get into this more later on in the episode, but yeah. there there is this ideal, and it sounds really good, and there's a lot of potential for that to be a very good thing. And a lot of these things we're discussing with technology and these different shifts that are happening could be really good. But unfortunately, um, in reality and historically, there are many other aspects that tag along. If you look at the Reformation, the idea was that people had different religious beliefs. They had different interpretations on what the Bible said. They thought the church was corrupt and wrong, and so they wanted to reform the church, change the church, and that changed into splitting from the church, and that changed into wanting to be able to interpret individualistically what the Bible says and how you live out your religion. Well, this, um, from one perspective, we'll look at the positive side of this, we'll say that that was a good shift, that we got away from corruption of the church and all this power that the church held over society, and people were able to look at things for themselves and make their own decisions and live and act in a much more free way, make their make their own minds up about what the Bible says and what they believed. Um, some people even decided they didn't believe at all, and this was possible now. However, when we look at the big conclusion, uh, so to say, of the Reformation, it's the Thirty Years' War. It's not something that really was focused on religion, although there are religious aspects. You know, England broke away, and there um, was a definitely a nod to religious differences. But if you look at what actually happened, the reality of it, you had Christians fighting other Christians, and you had Catholics fighting for Protestant nations against other Catholics. And you have all these different strange dynamics that played out because this whole shift and all these things that were happening were basically co-opted by the institutional powers that be. And that is, in a sense, how we got the beginnings of the modern nation state. You had the church lose a lot of its power, and you had the nobility kind of step up and fill those gaps. And they it wasn't necessarily that the exact same nobles just all of a sudden became kings and had borders and had nation states, but we see out of the roots of the nobility and their role in society, 
we see that that's where the modern nation state and how it was formed and what it looked like later on, that's where the roots were. And one of the biggest catalysts here was the Reformation and the Thirty Years' War. And so even though ideally this was just an issue of interpretation of religion, it ended up being something where you had a massive power shift and the dominant player got ousted, so to say, and you had the nobility really come up and form this new entity, the nation state. And so I'm always trying to look at these things we're talking about in modern times through this lens of we have this ideal that technology is such a good thing, and in many ways it is. Like capitalism, it is a very good thing for society. We progressed a lot through capitalism. There were many very positive aspects of this. But at the same time, I'm sure we can all think of many different negative aspects of capitalism. And so there is this ideal versus the reality, and a lot of times they clash, but a lot of times they exist at the same time. And so it's something that is um, something to be aware of that I'm always trying to be mindful of and look with more of a, a critical eye, a more contrarian eye to these things that are happening because there's typically baggage that comes along with every shift in society. Yeah. And and let me, you know, to to respond, I think, a little bit to that, Joshua, let me be clear. You know, I think what I, what I was trying to point out, and I think this more links up with which what you, which your argument is that, um, as Jason was asking, uh, sort of my response to Jason was, I think it is intrinsic to uh, Enlightenment thought and its in its contradictions and tensions that uh, technology and the scientific method become linked up to an ideology of of uh, of being of efficiency. And so forth. And I'm not necessarily taking a role. I'm not taking sides on whether I think this is necessarily a good thing or a bad. I mean, I personally think it's the ideology has its problems and it's probably more problematic than good efficiency for the sake of efficiency. So in some ways, I think I'd be, you know, me and you, Joshua, might agree there more than you might realize. But I think uh, what I was trying to point out is I think intrinsic and one of the tensions and contradictions of the Enlightenment is precisely that its heritage, because of its emphasis on autonomy, of the individual because of its emphasis on um, on the way a scientific mission can can be transferred out from the sphere of uh, natural of 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 learning about nature to acting in society and in the human realm that uh, inevitably there's this ideology of efficiency which by the way is sort of intrinsic to the market and the way it in it acts is gonna is going to become diffused through, throughout society. Uh, that you know, I think that being said, I think you brought us to the to the to the modern moment in a sense, and we could keep going back to the past. I think it's useful to do those comparisons. It really is. Um, you know, we we have, uh, and maybe I'm not sure if you want to begin, Jason, or, or I can go, or if you, Joshua, you want to if you want to lead here. But I think it's you know, if we talk about the present and we talk about you know, we're talking about, and I, and what you were talking about, Joshua, I think is another important dimension of it, the Reformation, right? This shift in, if you think about it at the end of the day, you know, the church controlled knowledge during the Middle Ages. It controlled knowledge production. It also controlled the written word. Um, 
you know, Latin was a language that was the was the official language, and it was a, and it was a language. Vernaculars were not used all over Europe. Were not used as the languages uh, for official proceedings. Uh, in a way, the church everything had to pass through the sort of like siphon of the church. You know, the Reformation is, as you well mentioned, is a move towards um, individualizing that sort of uh, relation to the to the religious but has all sorts of other ramifications. And I think perhaps the most famous analysis is, you know, Max Weber's uh, The Protestant Ethic uh, and the Spirit of Capitalism, where he talks about how Protestantism is intrinsic to the development of capitalism, how the shift towards uh, thinking about um, thinking about my the way I can prove myself in the world through devotion to work and through devotion to a trade um, as a way of showing myself to be in God's grace, is links up in looks links up, links up with a certain personality orientation that is fundamental to the development of modern capitalism, which is about deferring, uh, deferring in a sense, earthly pleasure for later, and it's and and links up to a sort of financial no, uh, prudency or know-how. Now, this is this is this is Weber's sort of social uh, sociological. Analysis, which we could, which is debated, hotly debated. It's a classic of sociology. It's you know, it's not the end all of in terms of analysis. But, 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 you know, to bring us to the to the present world, you know, we have us, uh, we have very complex societies of people that don't have, um, that don't share ethical beliefs, uh, where of have all kinds of different perspectives on what they consider the good life. And, you know, one of the arguments that is made by, let's say, by someone like uh, um, Habermas is law is not about regulating the good life. It's about regulating moral universal action, what we can all do to each other and where our boundaries are. And within those realms, within those margins, you're basically allowed to do more or less, you know, within certain realms of what people decide. There's a big debate about this. You know, this is not, this is just one perspective. His perspective is the law is not about giving you an ethical foundation. It's about giving you a set of moral guidelines, which are supposed to be, if everybody had the chance to, to say something about it, everybody would agree because they're universal, you know, ide- in an ideal sense. But they're moral, they regulate moral practical action. They don't regulate ethics. They don't regulate, you know, what we consider valuable in a sort of, in a sort of thick sense. Now, there are other philosophers like Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, uh, who would say, no, 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 that's, you can't. You know the Republican tradition would say, uh, not the U.S. Republican, the the Rousseauan Republican tradition would say, no, 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 no. The the political self, the community is supposed to decide on the good life in a sense and sort of legislate on the good life. Uh, we can debate on that a lot, but if we think about our complex societies now that are regulated by these different media, law, uh, money, and then now with all these other things we've been talking about for a long for a while now, right? Algorithms. Um, but still television, radio, and all these other things, data. Um, I think that's, that brings us to the present in a really interesting way, and maybe we can talk about... Uh, Jason, I know you wanted to focus on on talking about maybe this constellation of these elements, power, technology, and so forth, um, in the context of maybe contracting. I, w- I wanted to talk about it in the context of urban governance and the way that big tech is and is link is intersecting with urban governance 
Yeah, yeah, I can make one comment. Um, you've mentioned multiple times about how things are kind of a natural evolution of what came before, and I think that's a very good point, that it's not like we have these isolated movements and isolated events that kind of sprung up out of nowhere, and then they affected the very next few things, and then that was over, and then we have something new that comes up. That's not really how it is. We have a natural progression. The ideas in the Renaissance um, largely led to the ideas in the Enlightenment period. The ideas in the Enlightenment period largely led to the rise of capitalism, and so did the Reformation ideas. And we see the scientific method being applied in capitalism and now being applied more through technology and data in things like governance and the corporate world. And these things are in evolution. They, they evolve. So although we do have these parallels that we're drawing that are very valuable, and you can see how this led to this led to this, just like in modern times, we have similar things where this led to this led to this. At the same time, there they are a natural evolution of each other. So you have this, um, the idea of cyclical history, in a sense, where Things don't necessarily repeat exactly, and you are progressing forward, but you have trends and ideas that kind of cycle through, and you have these patterns that cycle through throughout history. And I think that's true, that we have these evolutions where things are building on the things before, and it's naturally going to continue. We're not going to stop technology. That will evolve, and these things will have an impact on governance and government and society as a whole and public discourse, and there's nothing that we're going to do that's going to stop that. It's a natural evolution of what's going on and kind of the milieu of where we're living in today's society. And so I, I think that's a very good point to talk about how there is an evolution and these things are evolving. It's not isolated events and isolated parallels. These are kind of natural occurrences that do happen and we see them happen in patterns throughout history. And we can look at those patterns to help us better understand today and what's coming. And then also pair that with how we recognize the evolution. So we pair the pattern with the trend, the evolutionary trend in these different subjects and areas, and we can get a, a very good view and a better understanding of what's going on and what's to come. So I, I really do like that viewpoint that you've proposed a few times. Yeah. You know, and I would, and I would, I would say, uh, Joshua, that, that one thing I would highlight, I think, is is, and this might be a, a, a for a separate episode for us to discuss a little bit at some point, which is, you know, a, in terms if we're talking about history and our philosophies of history, uh, I really think it's uh, in one sense I would agree. You know, I think the things I'm trying to point out in in in, in saying, you know, it's important to look at that past uh, to understand how some if we can find some abstract terms to sort of understand how these shifts happen from one moment to another that we can help to that can in a sense help us to understand where we are uh, where I would I think I slightly depart from what you're saying is or depart from what you're saying to an extent is is uh, um, the idea that philosophy let, let's say history is, has a set of patterns that we could sort of uh, read and that they're that they are tied to let's say things like evolution that um you know, and this is a, this is a bigger discussion on on history that I think 
is almost beside the point so I, I don't want to spend too much time on that I I would just mention that I I agree with you to an extent I think it's important to go back and look at those changes because those changes are important to see how we got to this point where I would disagree is to say that those changes in a sense are we can map them onto the present um, I think I would want to emphasize more the differences uh, I don't I tend to think that human beings by dint of their own ways in which they have uh, social history uh, sort of by way of their that their uh, technological beings that their historical beings in a sense, are not determined solely by, let's say, uh, we can't think of them in terms of natural history. They are, we have, in a sense, uh, we are not necessarily on the same on the same path dependencies. It's, it's say natural evolutionary elements, uh, but that's a bigger question. I mean, uh, yeah, I would largely agree with you that yeah, we have these. Um, we might have patterns is what I'm saying of behaviors that if you look at the rise and fall of empires, for example, there are trends of um, what happens as they rise and what happens as they fall and some of the catalysts that happen. And we see that over and over again throughout history. But there are very big differences between the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire and the American Empire and the British Empire. And yes, like you say, we can't just um, translate those parallels exactly on modern times. There are differences every time. And I guess that's kind of where I'm envisioning that the yeah, evolution yeah. comes into play, where we have things that evolve, technology evolves, um, ideologies evolve, philosophy evolves, even religious beliefs evolve. And yeah. so those are the things that are very different. And there are many very big differences in today's world with today's shifts and things that are happening than there were in these historical times. So yeah, it's it's a very difficult thing because in, in one way we can look at the parallels and draw out these trends and some of these factors and influencing factors. But at the same time, there are also some really big differences. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if there's a way to do this scientifically, but we can at least get some ideas and make attempts at making all this work yeah. and help to better understand things. Definitely. No, and I, you're bringing up some big questions, you know, and I think that's, that's some interesting, really, to me, they're really interesting questions. And there has to do with, they have to do with historiography and big questions about does history have a direction in terms of it? A telos does it have a teleology does it have an end does it have a direction in terms of a trend you know i mean we could look at all kinds of philosophers who had a philosophy of history and in a sense who um and, and we could argue about where they were wrong or right and, and there are a lot of historians nowadays who do who believe that uh that there's you know they're um they take a more let's say uh what you would call perhaps uh history or historicist perspective in which they look at each, each particular historical moment as a as a unique configuration of, of elements uh, uh, and so forth so you know you bring up you bring up some really important questions i think particularly if you're interested in like looking at it from a historian's perspective and how we can think about the relationship between the past and the present uh, and i tend to think that's a really interesting set of questions uh you know i'd, I'd invite you and jason for to, to for us to talk about that for sure in a future episode that be i think that's a worth this worthy topic of discussion so why don't we look at history over the past 25 years to take this conversation a little bit away from the abstract into mm -hmm. something that's a little bit more tangible yeah which is something we try to do on panoptic good i think that's a good idea jason why don't why don't you take us there with uh i mean i know you wanted to talk about 
particularly about government contracting, right? Yeah, well, I, I thought it might be interesting for, you know, take a little bit of time here, take our conversation beyond the narrow focus on big tech, and we might examine the rise of new military contractors as an example of the modern state's relationship to capitalism in post 9-11 America. And moreover, I, I think these histories, the politics, the implications of big tech and military contracting converge in some surprising ways. So we can think about either one as an isolated object or as dependencies within the context of a new, maybe a techno surveillance state. Um, but that's that's a tad dystopian or conspiratorial. <laughs> then again, we've never shied away from going down paranoid rabbit holes. So, so here's the uh, bluff statement, trying more and more to give the kicker up front to maximize understanding in a Habermasian sense, be less st strategic. So as we think about the rise of a new techno-surveillance state, we, we could observe that, one, governments are increasingly using private military contractors to fight wars, emphasizing like U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, lar largely without being able to oversee or hold their contractors accountable. And two, tech firms, advertisers, and privately held social media platforms um, increasingly using big data to influence and predict consumer, employee, and political behavior, where governments are increasingly dependent on the same private entities to barely keep up technologically. So we can understand these shifts as a weakening of the legitimacy of the state or as an expansion of the powers of surveillance capitalists, which is the term used by uh, Shoshana Zuboff, who's the author of The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. So um, alternatively, we could view the state and surveillance capitalists as partners in a complementary relationship. Basically, anyone who is willing and able to pay for data, including our governments, incurs predictive and strategic powers at the expense of the perceived autonomy of citizens and consumers. Okay, but let's try to put all this into a further context by taking, again, a historical perspective, starting with the rise of new military contractors. So it's probably not surprising that the concept of a privately hired army is ancient. Oh, in the Prince Machiavelli wrote that mercenaries and auxiliaries are useless and dangerous, and if anyone supports a state by the arms of mercenaries, he will never stand firm or sure, as they are disunited, ambitious, without discipline, faithless, bold amongst friends, cowardly amongst enemies, they have no fear of God and keep no faith with men. So th there's a book called Mercenaries, A History of a Norm in International Relations by Oxford researcher Sarah, Sarah Percy. And she argues for the existence of a Western norm that restricted the state's use of mercenaries between the 5th and the 19th centuries. And this norm derived from a discourse which characterized mercenaries as without legitimate authority because they were not the state and selfish because rather than waging war for some common good or the preservation of the state, nation, culture, whatever, mercenaries provided a service to financially profit. So um, we, we could take issue with this discourse. Um, you know, state, ethnocultural, religious, ideological groups are selfishly oriented, even without financial profit. And moreover, money and ideology can complement each other. And this is readily uh, evident in journalist Jeremy Scahill's study of the company Blackwater, uh, one of my favorite topics, as you know, if you listen to uh, Panoptic. And the, the Blackwater corporate overlords seem to have been equally interested in both profit and waging a new crusade in the Middle East. So we might come back to Blackwater later. Those two things do go together. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting to me that Machiavelli opposed the practice of military outsour uh, outsourcing, whereas today Western governments commonly extend their international uh, military reach with private resources. 
and militias who pre- whose primary commitment is to the bottom line, uh, not the con- common good or the state. So that's not to say that corporate leaders are amoral or immoral machines, but like Juan and, and I have discussed in previous episodes, the logic of capitalism is to demonstrate a business case, a strategy to profit and grow before investing or taking action. So this logic can be very limiting, but uh, given a compelling business case, market action is powerful and useful, like like you mentioned, Joshua. So it's no wonder that in spite of some norm or discourse against the state's use of mercenaries, throughout history, we can find examples of private actors performing uniquely effective mercenary services and profiting handsomely. So some examples I discovered um, in 401, uh, BC, uh, the Persian prince uh, Cyrus the Younger, he hired a, a Hellenic uh, cadre of Hellenic mercenaries to oust his brother from the Persian throne. In the 14th century Italy, a mercenary group called the White Company auctioned their services to the highest bidder, fighting for and against the Pope on different occasions, and they raided local villages and towns um, when uh, maintaining profits um, slowed, when, when, when business slowed. And then we also have the Swiss Guard, served as the papal bodyguards during the Renaissance period, even after the state of Switzerland banned mercenary work. Um, Okay, but so the modern private military contractor, which entails both mercenary and military support services, is uniquely tied to the state, advances in technology and belief in capitalism. So the uniqueness of these connections may indicate the end of any norm against the state's use of mercenaries. So there's a Brookings researcher named Peter Singer. It's not the same as the Australian philosopher, the ethicist. Um, uh, but in his 2005 article, Outsourcing War, uh, Singer provides a really great summary of the rise of the modern private military contractor. And according to Singer, the new private military industry takes off at the start of the 1990s, so really when the Cold War ends. And given the reduced nuclear threat, many governments reduced their full-time professional armies Developing countries in the Middle East, Near East, and Africa, like Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, were becoming increasingly unstable. They were characterized by local sectarian and tribal conflicts, for example, warlords pitting child soldiers against each other in messy, asymmetric warfare. And advanced Western militaries looked to off-the-shelf commercial technologies to collect intelligence and manage impacts to trade and the threat of terrorism from afar. And such technologies were largely developed and operated by private firms. So, for example, in the wake of the Monica Lewinsky scandal in 1999, um, a CIA agent, Hank Crumpton, he was tasked to track down Osama bin Laden in Kandahar, Afghanistan. Uh, His team operated the early non-weaponized version of the Predator drone. And the Predator was and still is manufactured by General Atomics, who remains one of the largest suppliers of lethal military drones to the government. So this is really a fascinating uh, story. Using early drone technology, Crumpton's team located bin Laden, and they called on the White House for approval to take him out. And of course, to the dismay of Crumpton and, and really all Americans two years later, um, the White House failed to act. Uh, this, is, this is all from Crumpton's book, The Art of Intelligence. But here we have one of the earlier public, public uh, knowledge examples of the military using commercially procured technology to perform covert actions. And throughout the 90s, there was this domino reaction of foreign local conflicts escalating, and the U.S. was getting involved, uh, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, the resulting Gulf War, uh, the Somali coup leading up to a series of U.S. interventions and bloodbaths in Mogadishu. So advanced Western militaries required ready-to-deploy soldiers, but across the board, they were understaffed. Remember that the American draft ended in 1973, 
Um, during World War, uh, World War II, roughly 12% of the U.S. population served in the armed forces, and today it's less than 1%. So even pre-9-11, we see the government augmenting the military workforce with private security firms, firms like DynCorp, KBR, and Blackwater, although they really took off in 2003. So according to Singer, the expansion of U.S. military contractors in the 90s must be understood within the context of a larger ideological shift, where law, uh, lawmakers voted to privatize government functions across the board, things like education, policing, and prisons. Yeah. So now we're getting to September 11th. Um, I can pause there if, if either of you have any interjections. My only interjection is that it is now time to end this episode. I am sorry. So this will conclude part two. We'll pick back up with part three next time. It seems like a pretty good place to stop here. And um, we kind of start shifting gears, get into some other things. Um, and we will do so next week. So please tune in to that. I wanted to give a specific shout out to someone I'd mentioned before but didn't know their exact screen name. It is Warhawk23 on Apple Podcasts. They gave me a good review, said the podcast was phenomenal, and that I did a great job on my research and explained things very well. So thank you very much. That's very flattering. I really appreciate that. Anybody who takes the time to write a review for me, um, you definitely have my appreciation. And I really do feel like I am being supported and that people are really uh, getting something out of this podcast. And that makes me feel good. That gives me motivation to continue and to do well. And so I really appreciate that. And uh, please, if you have not done so, which most of you have not, um, I can tell because I can tell we only have a few reviews. So if you would, please take the time to just write a very quick review. It doesn't have to be quite as flattering as Warhawk did, but if it is, so be it. That'd be wonderful. But whatever it is, please write a review. And if nothing else, at least rate the podcast with the stars. Even if you're on a podcast player that doesn't have uh, the option for leaving ratings and reviews, you can just go to Apple. Even if you don't have an account, you can sign up extremely quickly. You just pick a screen name and you find the podcast and leave a reviewer rating. It's really easy. Um, anybody can do it. Uh, Apple is probably the best place to do it, but you can also do it on um, the Podbean website, my podcast website, which is ourfoundations.podbean.com. You can actually leave comments for specific episodes. And so if that's something you want to do, feel free to do so. I do see those. There aren't very many. I think there's only one or two that people have done on the website itself. But um, that's something that I can see and that does show up for other people. So that can be helpful as well. The other bit of housekeeping that I wanted to mention is that I was recently on a new podcast. I think my interview with this show is the first official episode of the Welcome to 1984 podcast. So as you can tell, this is about some of the dystopian aspects of society today, and especially about um, what's going on with coronavirus. That was the topic in the episode that I did on the show with them. And this episode, we specifically focused on some of the phrases and some of the words that are being used, things like the new normal and 
contact tracing and social distancing and things like this. And we talked about more of the dystopian side of things and how these are affecting society and individuals and this kind of stuff. It was really interesting. Uh, The host on there had some good comments and interesting comments to make, as well as um, I did a decent bit of talking since I was the one being interviewed, obviously. And so if you are interested in that and didn't get enough with the short COVID series that I did, the three-part series um, that I interrupted at the beginning of season two with, um, then you can check that out. I will have that posted on the Patreon page at some point. I have been trying to um, put extra content on the Patreon page, even though it's not technically exclusive because I'm telling you right now. And if you listen to this, you can just search for the Welcome to 1984 podcast, find it, listen to it, and you can enjoy it. But if you are a patron and a supporter, then you will automatically get those appearances uploaded on the Patreon platform. And I will personally put those up there where you have your own private feed, your podcast feed, and you will get all of those uh, private episodes. And so what I do is I get the audio from any appearance I do, any interviews I do, and then I'll upload it on Patreon. So you can just directly get it there. It's all together. You can see it all. Um, Obviously, you could go to the 1984 podcast and find it somewhere. Uh, But I have it all in one place for supporters at least. So that's handy. But also, if you are not supporting financially, that is perfectly fine. Just listening is support in and of itself. Um, Plus, I'd already mentioned reviews and ratings. There's lots of ways to support the show. And I do appreciate every single one of them. But if you are not a financial supporter on Patreon, you can still go to the Patreon page and then look at the different posts that I have uploaded. And you should be able to see what those different appearances are and what shows I've been on and which ones I've released on there. And even though you won't have access to listen to them through the Patreon platform altogether right there, you can at least get the names of the shows and uh, figure out what appearances I have made. And that way you can kind of generate your own list and um, look at what I was a part of. If you can't remember, uh, just go to the Patreon page, look at the posts there and you can find it there. So with that, I think that is everything that I have. I hope you're enjoying this um, collaboration with Panoptic. I know it's a little different than most of the other interviews that I did since this is a collaboration and we're joining the content of both our shows together. And we have some other types of subjects and perspectives going on here. Um, If you cannot tell, the hosts to Panoptic are definitely um, more... let's say less skeptical of the political system than I am, I think would probably be a good way of putting it. I think um, they would definitely be more on the left side of the spectrum, at least. Whereas I, I don't know, maybe I'm not on the spectrum at all. I'm kind of above or below the spectrum or to the side, who knows. Um, I have plenty of disagreements with the right and plenty of disagreements with the left. I have disagreements with the system as a whole. And I think the left right paradigm is a false dialectic. So that's just my opinion. But Anyway, hopefully it's helpful to get some other perspectives and to hear their points of view and how they um, come at these different topics. Uh, The same was true of Benjamin Jacobs. He's definitely much more left-leaning, and he believes that the state has a very large role in managing society and directing resources and things like that. And um, if you listen to that interview as well, he comes at things from a different perspective too. So, 
uh, I think that's very helpful to kind of blend these different ideas and look at these topics and concepts from multiple perspectives. And even though we might not directly come out and talk about, well, do you think the state should exist or not? And then talk about why and why not, that kind of stuff. Um, you, you can at least get the opinions on these topics from people with different political views, and it does influence their opinions and perspectives. So even if it's not direct, even if we don't directly talk about political theory, um, it still is there and it can be helpful. So hopefully um, I've done a good job at presenting that. I do have some more interviews that I am looking at doing. I am enjoying this topic of the COVID-19 pandemic and all of the reactions involved between individuals, uh, societally, and with governments around the world. I might do another appearance with the UK-based podcast that I've already been on once. They asked me to come do another episode with them, so I'm working out details with them to see if we can set something up. And then there was a second podcast in the UK that asked me to come on and talk about these things. And so as I do that, I will definitely tell you on here. But usually I just mention that in the next episode that I record. And I'll mention that I was just recently on another podcast, just like I did recently um, a few minutes ago with the Welcome to 1984 podcast. Usually that's what I do. And I don't repeat it every single episode that kind of would get a little monotonous. So Again, double check the Patreon page because you might have just missed one announcement that I made. I might have only made one announcement. And so if you're interested in um, finding uh, other content and more of my views and perspectives on things and more content related to that kind of stuff, especially right now with the COVID-19 stuff, I'm doing a decent bit on that. So definitely check out the Patreon page and see what I've been involved with there. And with that, I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.